Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Join us as Michael Merlin, founder of Merlin Wealth Management, and various friends and experts break down complicated financial topics to make them easy to understand. If you'd like more information about Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. And with that, here's founder of Merlin Wealth Management and private wealth advisor at Rockefeller Capital Management, Michael Merlin. Thanks, Tom, and welcome everybody to another episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. Um, Today's topic is private placement life insurance, and you might be asking yourself, what is that? Uh, In the simplest form, uh, I would tell you that private placement life insurance is very similar to, uh, you may have heard of variable life insurance. It's an insurance uh, policy where the uh, separate account cash can be invested. Um, there have been a, I'm sure everybody on this podcast at some point has been approached by someone telling them the, the benefits of investing, quote unquote, inside of an insurance policy. And, you know, in, 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 in our, in our view as, as advisors, you know, we've always cautioned people because of cost and the limited amount of investment choices one would have inside of such a vehicle. But, um, the tax benefits of investing inside of an insurance policy are, incredibly interesting. And, you know, one of the things I think we're all paying attention to these days is that I don't think anybody, regardless of, of which side of the aisle you might, uh, you might be, uh, be attracted to, I don't think anybody thinks that tax rates are going down. So uh, and the idea of being able to invest money uh, in something that's tax deferred, uh, that could be, uh, that could leverage your, uh, your estate or leverage the, the, the tax-free assets that your heirs or charity could get is definitely something of interest and we wanted to discuss it here today. And I'm very fortunate to be joined by Dave O'Leary, who is the head of uh, Rockefeller Capital Management's Insurance and Annuity Division. Um, Dave is also a, uh, a Boston College man, so go Eagles. Um, and so uh, we will, uh, we'll, we'll dive deep into, into, the, to, into this product. Dave, uh, I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it, and uh, pleasure pleasure to be on and and help help you continue this series. Sure. So, um, I guess the first thing is, you know, I, I gave a I gave sort of a, a a very rudimentary definition of what private placement life insurance is, but could you go a little deeper into how uh, PPLI works and 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 its applications? Yeah, Michael, you you described variable life insurance, um, and and your opinions about it, and and they're Correctly so, because when you think about investing in a, in a normal insurance policy, if you will, it's sort of letting the tax tail wag the dog. The idea with private placement life insurance is to use the tax qualities that are associated with a life insurance policy. However, it starts with what can you invest in and how can we provide additional options inside of the life insurance policy to use that tax quality and make a better after-tax return for the position. And so in private placement, what we do is we have the opportunity to access, if you will, normal taxable investments, but also private placement or um, a private placement non-registered. So it creates a larger open investment environment, if you will, more interesting investments than we can have in other places. And then the second piece to it is we take the cost structure of the life insurance policy and minimize it to the greatest degree possible. Because what we wanna do is we, it is yes, it's a life insurance policy, but we want the actual investments to do the economic driving and deliver the value 
using the tax quality of the life insurance policy itself to create a better after-tax return for that portfolio. So Dave, I, I saw something um, in some of the uh, marketing literature that that, that we use, um, and and I thought this was one of the most compelling uh, data points. And that, you know, as we start, as we at Merlin Wealth Management start to talk to our clients more about this, this is obviously something that's that's compelling. Which is, um, if you assume that you were getting a gross uh, rate of return of eight percent on your portfolio, and you were doing that in a taxable environment, right? I think after taxes, whether they're depending on what state you live in, obviously it's different. You know, federal tax, city, state tax, etc. But you're probably getting somewhere net of that eight percent return, somewhere around you know four to five percent, maybe. You know, of that eight percent, are you actually getting after tax? Um, but when you look at something like uh, private placement life insurance with the same exact portfolio gross return of eight percent, because you don't pay the tax, the only cost you're coming that's coming out of there is the insurance cost. And so yeah. you know, you're keeping, you know, north of seven, you know, of that eight percent, you're keeping north of seven percent on a compounded basis. And you know, something compounding at seven percent, you know, for 10 years versus something compounding at four percent for 10 years, you're talking about twice the amount of money at the end of that 10-year period. So I mean, I assume that that's the the tax attributes of the of the policy that are that are compelling. Absolutely, and and so it's funny you mentioned I'm a BC guy. Uh, my background is obviously as an estate planning and tax attorney, um, and in addition to what we do at Rockefeller on the insurance side, the ability to leverage that tax wrapper to create a better after tax return. Exactly to your point what it does is give the asset the ability to compound in that tax-free ecosystem that's created, growing to a significantly larger amount, uh, all else equal, really driving that better after-tax result. Well said. And then, you know, I guess the other thing that was compelling, that, that I think is compelling, right, is is the fact that, you know, we I think those of us that have been involved in estate planning, obviously you being you know, both an MBA and an attorney, you know, have seen this many times. But you know, one of the things that 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 we like about insurance, right, is the fact that the death benefit is usually estate tax free. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting here, though, is that you know, for for some of the entities that we might consider using uh, private placement life insurance, um, whether these are legacy entities set up by clients that they they, they don't feel they'll really tap over their lifetime, but really is there for next generations to inherit. You know, one of the, 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 the one of the lovely things about creating a family LLC or family limited partnership is that you get that growth outside of your estate and let it compound. But one of the one of the one of the things that's that's more difficult to manage, you know, at the end of that period is that those assets then go to your heirs and there's no step up in basis, you know, from date of death. Um, talk about how th that might be different in a in a PPLI circumstance. Yeah. So with with PPLI, because it is a life insurance policy, it has the the benefit of both a tax free ecosystem during the life of the insured. So there is an insured that's on the policy. When that insured passes away, a death benefit pays out, and like any other life insurance policy, it pays out income tax free. And, and very much to your point, if we were dealing with assets that are in a, a family limited partnership, an LLC, a, a dynastic trust, any one of those entities, because, because the assets are no longer owned by an individual, lose that step up in basis. And as a result, it can be very hard to reallocate those dollars, or even if you pass it out to ultimate beneficiaries, they need to recognize that gain themselves. 
by using and leveraging the private placement life insurance policy and using and, and receiving a tax-free death benefit at the at you know in each succeeding generation it allows for a replacement of that step up in basis that okay great now we're back to having cash to invest or assets that are at par and so it creates a lot more flexibility for managing those assets particularly if we're speaking about intergenerational uh, transfers and i think this is one of the areas where at rockefeller we really have unique value to bring to the table we've been managing our founding family's wealth for seven generations um, and part of what we do when we think about uh, creating the best after-tax return is leverage all the expertise in the firm to drive not just the best after-tax return for an investment portfolio but we have to think more broadly about okay how does that fit into the estate plan how does that fit into the finance the, the the financial plan and think about how do we drive the best after-tax result for each client's individual goal. And so by adding not just the investment side to it, but how does that fit into the broader perspective, we can really talk about driving more meaningful value for our families. So that's a great lead. And I know we're going to get to a couple of case studies, you know, application of this practical application in a minute. But before we go there, um, let's talk about, because again, what, what when we talk about this compounding impact and the fact that that compounding can be uh, supercharged, if you would say, based on the on the tax treatment, uh, what are the best kind of investments to go into a PPLI? I'm assuming now that you know, a lot of the reasons why our clients have backed away from the idea of putting significant money in insurance in the past, and the re reason we've been hesitant to ever recommend this is because while the tax benefits are there, the only way that it makes sense is if you can achieve a rate of return like eight or nine or 10%, and, and in a very limited menu of, you know, similar like a 401k, a very limited menu of mutual funds or something like that being provided by the carrier, maybe the achievement of that rate of return wasn't as, um, it wasn't as, as likely. And, or, you know, because I know a lot of our clients, the reason that they invest the way in, in, for example, in our investment strategies, et cetera, is because they want their investment plan to be ideologically aligned with their you know, values, ethics, et cetera. And so that was limited application inside of, a, of, a, of an insurance policy. Can you, so can you talk a little bit about what investments are available and also more suitable for a private placement life insurance policy? Yeah, there's, um, you said it well, when you, the ability to tailor how one can invest these assets is dramatically increased when you look at the private placement versus a registered insurance policy. With the registered insurance policy, you want to think about the options there being very broad mutual funds. Um, and that's really all you have the option to invest in. Um, with private placement, you think about what types of assets. One, an actively managed investment account is, is one of the first places you would think about anything that has a lot of different trading that's occurring in it. Those trades might be fantastic for, the, for, for, the, for managing the strategy in the portfolio, but each one of those oftentimes creates a taxable event. Um, so an actively traded account is one of those that could make a lot of sense here because now we can rebalance or trade all those different positions and do it frictionlessly and have no tax ramifications of doing that. So that's one spot that's there. Um, another place um, that we'll see oftentimes is the world of alternative investments, as it's called, um, and, and credit um, investments, a lot of private credit funds, things of that nature. These are positions that from an investment management strategy can help 
um, complement portfolios and provide a lot of different um, benefits to the portfolio, however, frequently are inefficient, meaning they create a lot of short-term gains that would otherwise be taxed if it was owned in a taxable account, taxes ordinary income to the owner. By using the private placement insurance policy as the wrapper and then placing those types of assets in there, we get to avoid that recognition and compound those gains. So that can be another very compelling strategy within that. Now, even within the world of private placement, I think it's worth noting that typically um, for the vast majority of, of firms that offer private placement insurance, they can access um, what's available on the carrier platform. There are the mutual fund type options that we discussed already. And then there are some hedge funds and credit funds and some other things that are insurance versions that are available on the carrier platform. And that's the extent of what can be offered. One of the things that, that we've built at Rockefeller that is unique in the marketplace is the ability to access not just what the carrier has for options, but also to access Rockefeller investment strategies that are available. So anything that Rockefeller can approves as, a, as an RIA, a registered investment advisor, we could have our advisors, call it Mike Merlin, um, allocate those dollars choosing from not just options on the carrier platform that most individuals have, but also accessing Rockefeller options that otherwise could, would be a taxable result. However, held here, we have a tax advantage ecosystem that we've created. And the one thing, the one additional thing, being a tax attorney that I'll mention is oftentimes when you own some of these alternative type structures, the tax result you have is not only currently taxable, but you also receive a K-1. Those K-1s come typically late. It means you're gonna be due, going on extension. You're not filing your taxes in, in April. You're filing them in October. They're very messy, et cetera. By owning the asset inside of this structure, those K-1s actually go away. And so it has an opportunity from just a practical implementation standpoint of really um, simplifying the client's tax, annual tax burdens. All, all great points. Um, you know, one thing I know that we're really excited about here at Merlin Wealth Management is that um, I would say, hopefully in the next, uh, you know, few months, um, there will be a, there will be a PPLI offering at Rockefeller that includes the Merlin Wealth Management investment strategies. So our, our five asset management strategies will be available inside of a PPLI along with as you mentioned, uh, uh, hand-selected uh, private investments that can go along with that to create, uh, you know, really dynamic portfolio for clients looking to do this. Um, and those who would say, hey, you know, we, we, we want to remain invested in your strategies because they, they fit our investment plan or they're ideologically aligned with our family's investment philosophy, et cetera, um, you know, we'll, we'll be able to deliver that. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And thank you for your help in getting us, uh, getting us to that point. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, so, um, why don't we why don't we move to a few case studies? Um, you know, we kind of we kind of alluded to one um, earlier as far as you know the ability to save or to compound for dynastic wealth for legacy wealth growth. Um, why don't you kind of walk through how that works? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's imagine we have um, a dynastic trust, so dynasty trust that's a, a generation skipping exempt trust. So typically when one owns assets inside of their estate, there's an estate tax 
that is applied at death. And if you were to at death instead give assets not to your children, but to your grandchildren or anybody further down, you have an estate tax application, what's called a generation skipping tax. So a second estate tax, if you will, on that transfer. As a result, and we transfer assets outside of the estate and create, um, if you will, protected buckets that no longer have to go through the estate tax and generation skipping exemptions. Very, very powerful um, from an estate planning and a wealth transfer strategy. Um, and, and, and the right thing for a lot of our clients to do from the perspective of building intergenerational wealth. You alluded to it, which is you do that because you get outside of a 40 or in a, in a few years, potentially a higher estate tax uh, for each generation and the generation skipping tax. And that's, that's important, that's good, but we lose a step up in basis when that happens. And that step up in basis, we can think about it like this. If I had a, I purchased a stock for $100 in my name and it grew to $1,000 net worth, uh, net value. And then I died and I passed it to my daughter and I had an estate tax that was being applied. Well, when my daughter gets that, uh, when my daughter gets, receives that stock, for $1,000 because it was in my name and I owned it, she receives it with a $1,000 basis. So instead of having to sell it and recognize $900 a gain, she got it for a thousand. Okay. Change that, I'd gift it to the trust, $100 stock. Now it grows to $1,000 of, of worth. When the trust sells that, even after I die, when the trust sells that or passes that, that stock out to my daughter and she sells it, she has to recognize $900 of gain, and that's how that's tax at capital gain treatment. Today, that would be, call it 23.8-ish percent, depending upon where you are in the country. And so we lose that step up in basis to avoid the gain on the 900, the recognition of the $900. When we use the private placement life insurance policy and buy the stock inside the policy, now we have 100 that grows to 1,000. And when I die, because it's a tax-free death benefit, the $1,000 is paid to the trust and there's no income tax or no capital gain tax that's due as a result. So having an intergenerational transfers, a portion typically of those dollars invested in a private placement insurance policy can dramatically increase the after-tax return of the intergenerational transfer by getting to avoid all the capital gains on even a long asset in addition to the compounding that occurred during the insured's lifetime. I think that's a great example. And, and you know, I, I, one of the things that's very interesting, right, is the fact that, that the PPLI can be owned in various structures, right? So whether our clients have a dynastic trust, whether they have a family LLC, family limited partnership, um, even some applications to like a charitable remainder trust, um, you know, any, any of those assets could be, um, any of those structures could utilize the PPLI um, a, a, as, a, as a tax advantage uh, uh, investment structure. Absolutely correct. The, one of the benefits of life insurance, and I know we'll talk about annuities in a couple of minutes, but with life insurance in particular, that tax advantage, that tax deferred growth through the life of the insured and that tax-free death benefit um, is maintained in any type of structure. Uh, an ownership entity, if you will. The only exception to that is if it were owned in a qualified plan, a, a, a pension or something along those lines, 
the assets when they distribute from the pension would be taxable. That's the only exception. Beyond that, regardless if it's an LLC, if it's a C-Corp, if it's uh, individual or trust, all of those receive that, those tax benefits. So you just touched on something I wanted to cover because I know this is a question that our, our clients ask a lot when we sit with them and do some of these more intricate estate plans, right? And one is, what if we mess up? You know, what, what, if, what, if, what if we've allocated too much money to the legacy entity and not enough money to us, and all of a sudden we turn around in 10 or 15 or 20 years and say, my gosh, we really could use some money out of the family LLC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, talk about the ability to, to, to withdraw from the PPLI um, policy um, if, if that, again, in the structure, in the case study you just gave, the idea would be to never do that, right? To let that yeah. compounding work for decades and decades and just build that legacy outside of the estate bucket to the maximum amount. But if there was an issue or if there was an emergency or a miscalculation or whatever the case may be, how can those um, dollars be accessed, if at all? Yeah. And, and Michael, I think one of the great fact patterns or, or um, examples um, of that to be to be cognizant of that are sp spousal lifetime access trusts or SLATs. Um, these are trusts, as you know, that um, a spouse makes a, makes a gift to, gets the asset outside of the estate. However, there's still a benefit that can be paid back to one. If, if it's never used, it passes on, typically next generation or subtrusts, et cetera, but there's an ability to access funds during spouse's lifetime. Um, perfect example, we can structure a private placement life insurance policy in, in two ways. One of them creates a tremendous amount of flexibility to access value from the policy during the life of the insured. And the way that's achieved, and, and what does that mean? Well, we achieve it by paying into the policy instead of paying everything up front. And let's just say we were gonna put $10 million into a policy. Instead of putting $10 million into a policy day one, we say, okay, you know what? Let's put over four years, two and a half each year. That preserves a flexible tax status. And what it allows the owner of that policy to do is at some point in the future, if they need to take a withdrawal out, they can access first withdrawing basis, so income tax-free, return of basis. And in that context where I gave the 10 million example where 10 million was added to a policy, and let's just say for the sake of argument, it grew to $20 million. You could withdraw the first $10 million income tax-free uh, at, at any point in time. You have that flexibility. Then you could actually also make policy loans of the additional cash value up to, you know, up up to call it 80% of that additional $10 million of gain and pull that out of the policy income tax-free. So it can be structured as an incredibly flexible strategy from the standpoint of both accessing dollars during a client's life and having a tax-free death benefit after, after death. And that actually points to one of the case studies that, that I see fairly frequently, which is if we have, for example, um, individuals who have uh, been very successful, have considerable assets that they've grown in their own estate. And, and they're looking to say, okay, great, I'm, but I'm younger. Say I'm 45, um, 50, whatever it might be. I want to create tax diversified buckets um, that I can pull in the future to help support my lifestyle. Um, 
when we think about the various types of accounts we can hold in our own name, uh, I'd suggest there are three of them. You have a taxable account where we can get tax, taxable gains, et cetera, and have capital gains. You have um, retirement accounts um, that, are, that are tax qualified accounts, if you will. When we take withdrawals from those, they're typically taxed at ordinary income. Um, and then you have the opportunity for tax advantaged accounts, and that's the private placement insurance. So what we can do is structure it so that even when somebody owns it themselves, not in a trust or a family limited partnership, but owns it themselves, it creates another diversified tax bucket. That becomes powerful because it means when I'm, you know, I put it in at 45, when I'm 65 and I'm ready to start taking income from various places based upon what the current tax environment is and what the market's doing, et cetera, I now have multiple buckets to pull cash from to make sure I'm not creating too much tax burden at that point in time. So that's another use of the PPLI is helping to grow personal assets on a tax advantage basis and have income tax-free access when we want to help support our lifestyle in the future. It's a good point. You know, when we talk to our clients who are, um, when, we, when we help them structure a cash flow plan at retirement, we also talk about buckets, right? Buckets to access for one to five years, five to 10 years. And then, you know, what I always call the, the motor at the back of the boat, which is, you know, the, the aggressive investments that are there to kind of keep inflation protection and cost of living adjustments, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting about this is it could actually serve as both, right? You can have investments in it that are, you know, growth investments, but because of the nature of the product and the fact that you can borrow on a tax-free basis, if the market was bad or, or, and you didn't want to access any of your other buckets, you could borrow money from here, allow the market to recover. And then when things were better, you could go into your taxable bucket, you know, recoup some profits, take some capital gains, et cetera, and then pay back the policy loan. So it, it is, I, I do see how it could provide that flexibility you're talking about. Yep. Makes sense. Um, so you mentioned it before, and, and I did want to touch on it briefly. There, there is also a private placement structure for a variable annuity, and obviously, variable annuities are taxed differently. Um, distributions are taxable, so um, you know, not necessarily as applicable to some to the some of the cases we just mentioned. But um, you know, we did talk about a, a couple of of cases that are applicable. One would be obviously um, if you were leaving the variable annuity to charity, that would be one application, and then another for um, you know, someone potentially retiring, uh, maybe in a in a in a more tax favored state than you know than where they currently live. So, could you kind of run through what those look like too? Yeah, absolutely. And then I'll I'll actually add a third for you as well. Right. Which Great. is, you know, that third is sometimes our clients um, they have existing annuity contracts that they've owned for some period of time. And they grow on a compounded basis, which makes them an attractive asset from the standpoint of, wow, that, that asset's growing really well. But maybe it was a, a, an annuity contract that they bought with an income guarantee um, that they thought they were going to use to create income in the future, but the rest of their assets grew up around it. It didn't make sense anymore. And they're typically high-fee positions. Now, I'm not saying that's bad, but that's just reality. If you're not going to use the guarantee, then it's like you're paying – money for something you're never going to use. Um, a lot of, we have a number of clients who have repositioned those assets into private placement to make them more useful towards their current financial needs than some of these old contracts were. So that's, a, that's also one place where the annuity comes in because like the private placement life insurance, the private placement variable annuity is, it is an annuity contract and it's taxed under the same, uh, it, it, 
Internal Revenue Code as a regular annuity. Now, what is also similar is the private placement nature. It means you can access more than the, than the typical investments. So the, the expanded platform, both into hedge funds and things like that, is available the same way. And the ability at Rockefeller to potentially have also Rockefeller RIA um, investments and, and, and strategies put in there that would otherwise be taxable, also still available. The difference between the two, as you noted, is, is the taxation. And the difference there is annuities, variable annuities are taxed similar in a sense to an IRA. Um, and what I mean by that is the dollars you put in grow on a compounded basis. You don't pay any gains, any, any, any income tax on the gains until you actually take a withdrawal from the policy, from the contract. Um, now, when you do take a withdrawal from it, you, to the extent there are gains, you're going to pay ordinary income on that. And if you take a withdrawal before the age of 59 and a half, like a retirement account, you have ordinary income on the gains and then an extra 10% penalty. So that adds a, a different context around where you would leverage it inside of a broader strategy. Um, the other piece that I should mention is when you have when the annuitant, which is the equivalent of the insured, insured passes away, the death benefit is not income tax free. It is to the extent of gain, ordinary income, all tax right. upfront. Right. Uh, okay. So with that, what is the context of the planning planning environment that you would use it? And I'll give you a couple of fact patterns, but as kind of a guiding principles, if you will, what we want to do is we want to create the best after tax return for the portfolio um, and do that with the least amount of additional complication and the least amount of additional expense. Um, with the annuity contract, it's a little simpler to put in place than the life insurance policy. You don't have to go through underwriting like you do in a life insurance policy. Opening it's more like opening a brokerage account. Mm -hmm. so that's the first piece. Um, the, and, and it costs just a little bit less from a structural standpoint because um, there's no cost of insurance inside it. So you truly just have a tax-deferred account. Mm -hmm. Now, as you think about that, okay, what are the, what's the fact pattern where I'd use that versus using the private placement insurance? And what I'm going to, again, guide to is how do I create the best after-tax return with the least amount of added complexity and the lowest amount of additional cost added? Imagine, and you, you mentioned the first one, which is imagine you live in New York or you live almost anywhere on the East Coast, almost anywhere on the West Coast or up in the Great Lakes. You have a higher state income tax than often seen if you lived in some other parts of the country. But let's imagine that you live in New York and in 10 years or 15 years, you're going to spend more than half the year living in Florida. Or living in Texas or California in Nevada. Well, what you have the opportunity to do by using this tax deferred structure is say, okay, great, I can avoid paying all state income tax and potentially city income tax because it will grow and compound. I'm not recognizing any gain while I live in New York. When I move to Florida for half the year and I'm now a Florida tax resident, there's no state income tax. I can liquidate the policy. I still have to pay federal ordinary tax on it, but because Florida has no state tax, I avoided paying the entire New York tax structure. Um, a, a, similar, a similar fact pattern, 
I could even be in a low tax state from a uh, from an income tax perspective. Um, and, you know, southern states, even Florida, Texas, et cetera. But I might have the highest individual uh, marginal tax rates on the federal level. And maybe in 10 years when I no longer have a significant W-2 or, or 1099 income coming in, I'm going to drop to a much lower marginal tax rate. The ability to drop from an effective tax rate of 40%, 45% down to 22% is an amazing tax savings. So again, the ability to say, I'm going to defer recognizing the gain until I'm in a better tax bracket, and then I can leak it out over time so that I've got a lower tax burden and again, better after-tax return. So that's, that's, that's one fact pattern. The second you mentioned is assets. Uh, I, this is going to be kind of a, a, a step back. It's a little bit of a different thought process. Let's imagine um, we have a couple that has done a lot of planning. They've, they've, they've gathered great wealth and they've set up their dynastic trusts, their family limited partnership. They've got They've got all sorts of planning that has been done, but they're always going to hold assets in their own name. They're, they're never going to give everything away, if you will. And, and the idea might be, however, that upon death, after they've already given away, I should have said, all their gifting exemption, et cetera. So everything that's remaining is going to be taxed under the estate tax system. For a portion of those dollars, if the plan is, okay, at death, they're going to leave them to a family um, foundation, a private foundation, or to Boston College, or to whomever it might be, a charitable entity. Using the annuity structure for that is actually very powerful because, again, it's simpler to put in place, it costs a little bit less to maintain, and if you leave it at death by death benefit, by beneficiary designation, to a charitable entity, what happens is on the estate tax return, you get a pre-tax write-off of the entire asset. And then it's recognized by the charitable entity. And if it's a 501c3, that's 0%. So what you've done is maintain control over that asset during your entire life. You can reach in and take money out if you want at any point in time. Um, because it's growing on a compounded basis, it's going to grow to a larger number than it would have in a taxable account. And you have control over the, the, the beneficiary um, at all times during your life. And so now I'll, I'll continue down our Boston College analogy. Let's say Boston College, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a donor there, and gosh, they really get a burn my saddle. They change the O'Leary dorm to the Merlin dorm. And I say, you know, you got to be kidding me. This, I, I left this legacy. Boston College, I'm no longer to give you those dollars. I'm changing the, the beneficiary to Notre Dame. One can do that throughout your life. You have complete control over where those dollars go. And then at death, it passes to the charitable entity. They have more benefit. You've given more than you otherwise would have. Really powerful um, opportunity to use the annuity structure there. Absolutely. So um, I know we're running up on time, and so I'm going to a little bit of a lightning round here for the last you know, couple of items. Um, so two things I know that are going to cross people's minds. And again, you know, I think we've talked about a lot of really interesting applications of private placement life insurance and the private placement variable annuity. Um, as our clients are well aware, um, you know, we are here to help them help guide them through this. Again, as they're as a as we have the ability to use our investment strategies inside of a PPLI or PPVA 
um, you know, we will be more out there talking to clients on a proactive basis. But again, anyone listening to this that has questions, you know, please come back to us um, and, and and we're happy to, to help answer them, even if it's just introductory material to really understand the application like we've talked about here today. Um, the last two things I wanted to go over, Dave, with you before we end are, um, number one, uh, the asset, the protection of the assets inside the separate account. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the insurance carrier and then, you know, if by some circumstance the insurance carrier was in trouble, you know, since we're talking about putting millions of dollars of capital into these um, yeah. PPLI and PPDA policies, what's the protection of those? And then I guess the second thing would be um, the fee structure. I know you said we're we, you know, we drive the fees down, um, but what does that fee structure look like on, on, on both products? Yeah. So um, the credit quality and asset protection question, it, really, really important because um, there are a couple of levels to that. One, credit quality of the carrier that's there. We always want to work with quality partners from a credit standpoint. Um, but incredibly important to note is the insurance industry is regulated very differently than any other financial industry in our economy. And so if we think about the banking industry, for example, and there's been some turmoil in the banking industry over the last few years, um, banks on any given night have called between eight and 12% of, of deposits in the vault and the rest are loaned out to creditors or to, to, to other customers. Um, and I always think of It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, it's George Bailey who's on his way to his honeymoon and there's a run on the bank and it's, well, Henry, your, your, your money's not here. It's in, it's in Sean's house and, and it's here and it's there. Um, unlike that type of structure, insurance carriers actually have to keep multiples of assets on hand for the risk of, and, and that they have in the marketplace. To see a healthy carrier, you want to see north of a call it a 300% ratio, meaning they have three times the assets relative to the risk in the marketplace. So much, much more, um, uh, much more stringently regulated uh, than other parts of the economy. Um, important to note, it's a great fact, in the United States history, there's never been a death benefit that has not been paid as a result of this structure. And that's, just, that's a neat thing to be able to say given given the length of, uh, of our economy, right? Um, and if something were to get in trouble, important to note, these assets, the investment assets are always held in a separate investment account. What that means is they're held away from the carrier and the carrier's creditors. So even if a carrier got in trouble, that separate account is not accessible for it. So it's a, a, effectively a superior position uh, to, to have that. Yeah. Um, then there are, depending upon the state, state-based creditor protections um, for both insurance and annuities. So just something of which to be aware there as well. Yep. Finally, uh, the fees you asked. Yeah, let's talk about fees. Yep, so in the private placement annuity, um, your typic, all you're talking about typically is 50 basis points to create that tax deferred wrapper. Um, there's no upfront costs and there's no back-end costs. There's no surrender um, schedules, if you will. Um, so it truly is a liquid tax deferred account 50 basis points is the amount to, to create the tax deferred bu bubble, if you will, the ecosystem. On the life insurance side, just a little bit different, the, the, the price to, if you will, create the policy, you go through underwriting, there's a couple other placement pieces that are there. It's about 2.3% um, of an upfront cost to get the life insurance policy in place. Then you have that same 50 basis points of, of, of maintaining the ecosystem, and you have cost of insurance that's added. When you do that, the two, the, the cost of insurance plus the 50 will probably get you to around 80 basis points of ongoing annual drag, depending upon age and underwriting, et cetera. 
Now, what we do typically, however, is we start the policy with a higher death benefit, and then after a period of time, we'll lower it to the statutory minimum. And the purpose for doing so is to decrease the cost of insurance as much as possible. So that 80 typically winds down to about 60 or 65 basis points on an ongoing basis. Um, again, as we think about which structure to use, guiding principles will be driving to the best after-tax return. How do we do get that at best after-tax return with the least amount of complexity and the least amount of additional cost. Both of our structures are what I'd call institutionally priced, meaning that um, I went to the carriers and argued to have those internal costs drop to the minimums that we could with the goal of letting the investments do the economic driving in the tax structure. Absolutely. Well, Dave, I, th I think we've shared a lot of information today with folks and um, I think it was it was uh, incredibly interesting and enlightening for them. I hope it was. Um, I hope it was. Uh, and so, uh, with that, I think we'll we'll close. I really appreciate you being here um, again and taking the time to to teach us a little bit today about private placement life insurance and private placement variable annuities. Um, thanks again to our audience for listening uh, to another episode of uh, taking the complex and making it simple. And we look forward to seeing you uh, again on our on our next uh, podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Taking the Complex and Making It Simple, the Merlin Wealth Management Educational Podcast. For more information on Merlin Wealth Management, please visit our website at rcm.rocco.com forward slash Merlin. Please stay tuned for an important legal disclaimer. This recording is provided for informational purposes only and is not an offer to buy or sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or to participate in any investment strategy and should not be interpreted to constitute a recommendation with respect to any security or investment plan. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the presenters as of the date of this recording may not be current and are subject to change and are general in nature. Rockefeller Capital Management has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Rockefeller Capital Management and may differ from the views and opinions of other departments or divisions of Rockefeller Capital Management and its affiliates. Rockefeller Capital Management is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. The information is not individualized. You should review any planned financial transactions or arrangement that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with your personal professional advisors. Rockefeller Capital Management does not guarantee the accuracy or reliability of the information provided in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. No investment strategy can guarantee profit or protection from loss. Future results may vary substantially from past performance. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. This recording may not be copied, reproduced, or distributed in whole or in part for any purpose without prior written consent. Rockefeller Capital Management is the marketing name of Rockefeller Capital Management LP and its affiliates. Merlin Wealth Management is part of Rockefeller Financial LLC, a broker-dealer and investment advisor duly registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Member Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Securities Investor Protection Corporation. The registrations and memberships mentioned in no way imply the SEC has endorsed the entities, products, or services discussed herein. Additional information is available upon request.